think it points to the need to rebuild communities in such a way that you're not calibrating your energy only in a reactive way, right? Something will happen, you react, but rather see that the crisis is ongoing, but the solution is also ongoing. And that if you really, your stuff together, right? Then you'll see connections. You will see um, ways out of the disappointment of the the the, the deacceleration of, of progress. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome everybody. Um, I'm Robin Kelly. Uh, I'm here with my friend, the great professor, scholar, writer, David Palumbo-Lou, an activist, I should say. You know, um, uh, he is professor of comparative literature at Stanford University. Uh, and he's on the organizing collective of uh, U.S. ACBI, U.S. Campaign uh, um, for the Academic Cultural Boycott of Israel, which um, I'm very much involved in as well. So that's one of our connections, as well as in the campus anti-fascist network. And his articles have appeared everywhere from The Guardian, Jacobin, Truthout, Al Jazeera. Uh, he's also uh, the author of several books, uh, including The Ethic the ethnic canon, histories and interventions, I'm sorry, histories and interventions, um, Asian American historical crossings of a racial frontier, uh, uh, and, you know, others. But the one we're going to talk about today um, is his brand new book, Speaking Out of Place, Getting Our Political Voices Back. And there's no one more appropriate to have written a book like this as someone like David, who is uh, both you know, in the streets, uh, in the halls of academia, uh, and always fighting for justice for everyone, irrespective of where they are uh, uh, in the world. So welcome, David. Well, thank you so much, Robin. It's, it's a pleasure to spend time with you always. I always think about how long we've known each other, and I measure our relationship by the ages of our children. <laughs> because, um, so we've known each other for a long time, uh, and it's, been, it's, always been, it's always been wonderful interacting with you. So I thought, you know, I'll talk a little bit about the context of the book and maybe some of the main um, ideas and examples, and then we can go into a conversation, really. So Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 start with that because one of the things I wanted to ask you about um, is, you know, you write. You're very clear about the context. You're really clear about, you know, this is the world of 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 the Trump years and the movements to unseat him, COVID, the 2020 rebellions, 
the worsening climate crisis, rising fascism, which you've been on the front lines fighting, the capital insurrection. Um, and yet I was really curious to know uh, specifically what inspired you to write this book. And especially, um, you know, given that you seem to have been writing it before 2020, mm. but it seems to me, um, who, who, was, who was your audience when you wrote this? Who were you writing it to? That's a great question because I had, um, after the last couple of books I did, one on Emmanuel Wallerstein and one on sort of what would be called global literature, I took a long break uh, because I wanted to have more more of an audience, frankly, than just the Academy and also to, to really write for the moment as things happen rather than you know the deep research that you and I do aside from this, uh, then the long publication process. By the time it gets out, you know, God knows whether it's still relevant. So I was uh, captivated by blogging. Uh, and yet at the same time, I wanted something more durable. I was trying to get uh, the precise moment that would constellate all these things and exactly the, the election of Trump uh, and everything that followed from that gave me a kind of overarching theme for a lot of this uh, miscellaneous pieces. And um, as the book is about voice, uh, Donald Trump's acceptance speech at the national uh, conference, where he said, I am your voice, I alone can do it, blew my mind. I mean, and there was, of course, a cheer, you know, you know the, the audience and the, the rhetorical circumstance. But I am your voice. Uh, and immediately thought, this man being anybody's voice was scary. And it was only a couple of months later that we had Charlottesville, when we had the Unite the Right um, events. And that just really um, disturbed me. And it made me think, well, where are the other voices? Where are, where's our voice? What's the possibility of that? And at the same time, and you and I've talked about this, um, the the notion of putting more energy into electoral politics is really is really abysmal. I mean, we just saw this then shoot down the Freedom to Vote Act. I mean, how can we, in good faith, put energy into this, thinking that 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 boat has sailed? Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved, and I know you and I are going to be out there campaigning you know, for this because it is something important. But ultimately, the way I see it now is just buying us some time. You know, If we prevail, which I'm, I'm not sure we will, it just buys us time because Biden's not going to do anything. I mean, it's very clear. Uh, he's part of the forces that we're working against. So what are we going to do with this time? And I was thinking of, and I begin the book with the great line from James and Grace Lee Boggs when they write, one of the first steps to creating an enlarged concept of our humanity is to develop an enlarged concept of our relation as human beings to politics. So this book really spurred me to think, you know, how we need to change our, our fundamental understanding of what politics is. And being a participant in politics rather than every four years you pull a lever or do something like that. And as you know, the, the, the word politics comes from the Greek politikos of citizens pertaining to the state and its administration, but it also means um, things pertaining to public life. So this raises all these questions about what public life is anymore and how we can transform our notion of who is the proper occupant of public life because we've been the we've been forced out of the public space, you know, either by brutal means, by violent means, 
uh, by material means. And this raises the question of who is entitled to occupy that space? And I do a lot of work with human rights, and I use that famous event about the um, uh, demise of the nation state. And one of the things that people don't pay a lot of attention to is she says, even beyond human rights, which she's very deeply skeptical of, she says, the most fundamental right is to belong to a community where your opinion matters, right? And we've lost all sense that we're part of any community where our opinions matter, right? Or that we are presented with a menu of opinions to select from, which is not really uh, doing us any good. So our sense of place has been lost. And I was really taken by this historical event that a friend of mine, Obed, uh, Oded Zippery, who I owe a lot to, told me about in sixth century BC, Rome. And to me, it symbolizes so much of what's been lost in our spirit and what we could do. So the Aventine Hill is the southernmost hill in Rome. And by that time in history, it had become the site of what we might call the lumpen proletariat. It was foreigners, it was refugees, it was laborers, it was slaves, it was outcasts. It was the most um, subaltern space you can imagine. And they decided to have a, a revolt. But instead of taking up arms, they did something uncanny. They set up an encampment and they created a form of their own. They they basically took their own imagination, their own voice, their intelligence, and they governed themselves. And they showed that, from example, that they were not worthy of being discarded, but they were as capable as, as citizens. And so um, I'm just going to go through a few examples uh, because I, I want to give us some hope. A lot of, of what we're confronting now is a sense of disempowerment, futility. We can't do this. We can't do that. But so much of my book is about taking the opportunity when it comes to do something that's not supposed to happen. And um, so in the middle of the Cold War, Jackie Robinson has established himself in the, imagine, in the American imaginary, is called before the House on American Activities Committee. Precisely to denounce Paul Robeson, right? Paul Robeson had been, you know, the, the bad Negro. And we need the good Negro to come up and redeem America. So he's put in a position that is very difficult for him. I mean, he's still, you know, he's still in jeopardy. He's in a precarious position because at any time, Grant Rickey could decide he'd violated his terms because he signed that contract on the promise he would not make trouble. That was specifically written. So he says, he gets up, and instead of denouncing Robeson or just not going, he accepts the invitation. And he says, white people must realize that the more a Negro hates communism because it, it opposes democracy, the more he's going to hate any other influence that kills off democracy in this country. And that goes for racial dis and that goes for racial discrimination in the army, segregation in trains and buses and job discrimination. And one other thing the American public ought to understand if we are to make progress in this matter, the fact that it is a communist who denounces injustice in the courts, police brutality and lynching when it happens doesn't change the truth of his charges. Um, Negroes were stirred up long before the Communist Party. So um, another example is a very recent Pia Klemp 
the 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 refugee tugboat uh, captain who was invited by the socialist mayor of Paris to accept this humanitarian award, and she gets up and denounces the whole process that created refugees in the first place. Um, I have a lot of other examples. I'm not going to give them all to you, but two that I think is are really important because it taps into what I hope to. Um, um, revitalizing people. And there are two moments when it has nothing to do with speech. And one is James Baldwin is invited to at Harvard. And the historian Anne Bailey is an undergraduate there. And she's invited to attend the dinner at one of the houses of uh, there in, in, in Cambridge. And she goes to the door and she's ushered into the kitchen. <laughs> Right, and she's utterly yeah flummoxed and humiliated, and so then she comes out of the kitchen door, and she and Baldwin locks eyes with her, and he can tell exactly what's happened. I mean, he and he just gestures to the seat beside him, come sit over here. It's that kind of understanding, and the other one is is less expected perhaps, but. And I'll, I'll end with this. Trump's having one of these big rallies. It's all staged, all amplified. The crowd's going wild. And this young man behind him, right directly in the path of the, of the camera, starts, you can't hear what he's saying, obviously, but you can see the formation of the words in his mouth that goes something along, I don't know what we can say on there, but like, what the fuck, <laughs> you know? And he's known now as the man in plaid. And people automatically, you know, take him off the stage. But so many of us watching felt like there, I mean, in the midst of this horrible fascist, spectacular extravaganza, we have a voice that, that questioned it, that was latent in every single one of us. So I'm thinking in this book that we can, through the power of taking the opportunity to re re habitate places, transform ourselves by animating what's inside ourselves anyway. So this is, that's the end of the lecture, but okay. these are the main points of the book. So those are, those are really great moments. Um, I always think about the courage of figures like, um, you know, like members of Code Pink, for example. Yeah that uh, always, you know, speak truth to power, step into spaces, disrupt the com- disrupt business as usual, but also with a message, you know, with a very clear message. Um, you know, one other thing that you, your book does really well, and that is it questions, I guess, two aspects of political discourse, well, many aspects, but two in particular I want to sort of talk about. Uh, one is the notion of expertise. You know, we're living in this world of of paid pundits. And when you actually when you actually <laughs> figure out who these people are, I mean, expertise is really not a, a strong word. But, you know, they're people who basically have connections who then are supposed to speak for all of us. Um, so the idea of punditry, but also the idea of technical knowledge. Um, economics is a field of study where most of it's smoke and mirrors. Right. Um, and yet. There's there's a whole language and jargon that's about this. And one of the things you one of the points you make in the book in talking about the anti-war movement 
is the way in which anti-war activists seized, took back the claim to expertise about nuclear weapons, for example, mm-hmm. and, and fought back. So can you talk about, you know, how do we challenge, deconstruct, overthrow this whole um, discourse of expertise, which is really about obs- obscuring knowledge rather than revealing truth? Yeah, and I, I want to say that um, the book manuscript ended up being too long to publish as one piece. So I have two chapters in the next book, one on education in which your work really is centered there precisely on these questions. Um, when I speak about the anti-war movement, I speak about the fact that um, long before Ellsberg published the Pentagon Papers, so many of us were already putting the on the internet or whatnot, but this delegation of power to other people is phenomenal. And it's also reinforced by the school system, right? I mean, the whole ways in which people are educated is always in deference. And this takes us right into what Freire calls the banking model of education, where you're simply going in and cashing in what's been deposited into your account. And what I try to do in, in this book is to say, what Freeway teaches us to do is, first of all, decide what your project is. You know, what, how are you going to, what are you trying to do? And for him, it's always changing, people changing the material conditions of their own lives. So whether it's, you know, setting up a well here or getting, uh, fixing automobiles, then you call in, you call in people who know how to do things. Or if it's a more synthetic project, you bring in people from all walks of life. People who understand what the community really needs, what, how the priorities should be set. But you know, ever since you know the you know, notion of rationalization, we've constantly been slicing and dicing and partitioning life so much that we've lost track of what the whole might be. And one of the questions you posed to me was, how are we going to survive? And I think that brings with it the question of what quality of life will we accept? And I'm... I don't know how you feel when I see I go by uh, an elementary school every day and I see beautiful young children being led by their parents. And I think that's wonderful. Why aren't these people on the street? You know, what kind of a pattern of life do they expect can continue under the circumstances that have them both wearing masks? You know, so on one hand, it's an idyllic Norman Rockwell kind of thing. The other one. It's a clear sign of the systemic failure of of capitalism. There's no reason why we should all be wearing masks. Um, There is simply the partitioning that has got us to believe that every single locale has to protect whatever freedom it thinks it's it's securing for its people. And exactly, and and, and some some locales are more vulnerable than others um, deeply. And in fact, um, one thing I wanted to ask, I actually had a passage I wanted to read from your book, but before you get to that, because um, this is actually really relevant right now, um, I was thinking a lot about COVID and the uh, imprisoned, you know, and, and you know, your, your book really does an excellent job of, of finding ways uh, that people could kind of articulate voice, but also claim space, you know, space that may be um, either in the pathway 
of the state or outside of its bounds in some way, or at least not the bounds of the state, but at least outside the, um, the surveillance, right? But one of the things, you know, COVID um, is just one of many uh, crises that really, uh, again, reveals the necessity of abolition and the, the, the way in which the state has silenced uh, imprisoned, uh, incarcerated people because you know, you know, you come from the generation in which, um, you know, and, now, and I'm sort of that generation too, just, a, just slightly younger, not not that much though. Um, where we took leadership from uh, uh, imprisoned intellectuals, from incarcerated intellectuals. Uh, the the new book that Haymarket also um, uh, put out, the beautiful book by um, Angela Davis and. That's and Gina, Gina Dent and um, Erica Miner's uh, uh, Abolition uh, Feminism Now, that's a book that also is saying is that we need to think about who our thinkers are. How, how do we collectively think through mm. this prison double complex and, and speak truth to power from places like within the prison? So how, how do we, again... Uh, take leadership from, find voice in uh, the incarcerated, the the dispossessed, the, the houseless, you know, and these are things I think you've been thinking a lot about. Yeah, well, this isn't exactly the same, but uh, let me say it and then I'll get to your question. I just showed this wonderful film um, to my class as directed by Raj Patel. It's called The Ants and the Grasshopper. And it's about a um, an activist woman from Malawi who is brought to the United States to do active. And she goes to the Midwest. She goes to Washington. She comes to Oakland. And she's trying to teach America why climate change matters. You know, how what she's experienced in terms of drought. And there's these graphic images of the landscape there is going to happen in the United States at any moment. So. We're getting back to the issue, issue of abolition. We have to see ourselves on a spectrum rather than in distinct bound, distinctly bounded spaces because the same forces that are happy to subjugate prisoners and create the whole pathway into prisons is happy to produce the, the uh, um, environmental apartheid, COVID apartheid. You know, you mentioned Palestine. I mean, it's the same apparatuses that have delegated certain populations into certain spaces and they don't particularly care. I mean, obviously the racial element is primary, but they can, I mean, I'm thinking about the original fascists. I mean, gypsies, queers, I mean, everybody, the, all the people that the Nazis went after were on a continuum of people that by their very life were considered to be offensive. So we can gain so much from the people who have been targeted, who have gone through these experiences because they are not going to be as unique as we would like to believe they are, right? And having the intense experience of being incarcerated and the um, being forced to 
um, to think within those confines. And the book by Nicole Fleetwood, Marking Time, which is a, a fabulous collection um, that deals with how prisoners make art out of raw material that they barter cigarettes for and things like this. That's what gives you hope, is to be able to see the spirit of liberation, even in the most destitute spaces of confinement, and think that we could learn how to how to do more than survive, right? Great. You know, which brings me up to this. Earlier on in the book, you uh, you make a powerful proclamation in your discussion of the necessity of anti-fascism, and you describe this moment we're in as a radical moment, adding, and I quote, <laughs> quote you, uh, to make good on this moment will require that we understand both our power and our obligation to award rights to others instead of merely counting on states or governments to do so. We are so uh, used to thinking of rights as someone else's responsibility that we have forgotten a crucial feature of democracy. We, the masses, have the capacity to envision what the state cannot or will not see in terms of rights. So I want you to um, say more about this, because right now, as you know, this is ongoing debate very intense debate about where our focus ought to be uh, on the left. Uh, that is resisting the state or creating alternatives that are, as it were, off the grid. Um, you know, autonomous versus, you know, state-focused resistance. And in many ways, you know, you open up with the quote from um, uh, Grace Lee Boggs and Jimmy Boggs. And they, you know, toward the end of, of Jimmy's life, and certainly toward the end of Grace's life, they had moved very far away from like confrontation with the state. They, they didn't ignore it. I mean, I, I don't want, I'm gonna be clear that, that you know, the movements that emerged out of Detroit continued to fight the state, but still they were saying, maybe we should consider um, what it means to be more human uh, as the way put it in, in how, what, what, what kinds of structures do we build? So when you say um, we have the capacity uh, to, uh, to kind of, create rights uh, to envision what the state cannot. Um, where do you stand on this question of what to do next? Do we, how, how much of this is about work that we need to do in terms of remaking community? Uh, and how much of this is work that we have to do in terms of speaking back to state violence, state power, state oppression, uh, and is ultimately dismantling the current state as we know it? Um, so what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, as you said, I think one can do both. I understand that it's important to think through what the polarities might be. But this gets to exactly the questions I know that, that all activists face, which is you have, as, a, as you know, Francis Fox Priven says and, and others, you have eruptive moments. You have a crisis. You have a spontaneous and powerful reaction. And then it subsides. And to me, that's attributable to all sorts of things, the people's energy, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it points to the need to, to, re to transform ourselves from within, to rebuild communities in such a way that you're not calibrating your energy only in a reactive way, right? Something will happen, you react, but rather see that the crisis is ongoing, but the solution is all, also ongoing, and that if you really have got 
don't want use what language to use, but your stuff together, right? Then you'll see connections. You will see um, ways out of the disappointment of the the the, the deacceleration of, of progress, and you'll see that there are different pathways to that. Um, but we're so used to again, it goes back to the pundit question: uh, immediate grad, you know, results or big results or better yet, big immediate results. And that's not going to happen. Nothing sustainable happens that way. So it has to be much more organic. But for it to be organic, we have to recognize it as something that takes time. On the other hand, we have precious little time. So my book is trying to imagine different scales of participation, all coming from the same ethos. So I was talking to my class today. And yes, I'm at Stanford, so maybe it's a special case. But I was, there's so few people with political buttons or, you know, there's slogans. I mean, I went to Berkeley. You, you, you couldn't go two steps without somebody you know, adorned with all sorts of things and behaving that way and having uh, and expressing an opinion. So what if we change the landscape of even our neighborhoods with people declaring their political affiliations, not just in, you know, those silly campaign buttons or Black Lives Matter, but in real embodied ways and carrying that into their conversations with other people. That's still not terribly satisfying because we want some more momentum. But I think I think that that has to be tried energetically and imaginatively. And that's what a lot of my uh, examples in the books are of people taking something that in a, that's supposed to be un, an unpolitical space and reanimating it and showing the possibilities, uh, not for an ends to itself, but as a way to spark a kind of curiosity and capacity. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, You'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, an autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. Yeah, and, and, and to doing doing so in a way that resists border imperialism, you know. Um, you, I, the book I didn't mention, I should have mentioned, which is your, your, the, your brilliant the Deliverance of Others, Reading Literature uh, in the Global Age. And I think about the, the last two chapters of this book, um, and I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's The Global Home. Mm-hmm. And um, let's see, it was um, Planetary Home. Mm-hmm. So here is are, are two really important chapters. The final one, of course, dealing with uh, the climate crisis. But 
Can you talk a little bit about what it means to implement uh, this, you know, I don't want to call it more than a strategy, but a, a way of life to figure out a how to live together, mm. how to speak up, you know, in other words, how to how to claim our place and claim mm. our voice on a global scale. And I know mm-hmm. the book addresses this, but what does that mean? Because one of the ironies we face is that, you know, while the world is so much more connected, mm. there's a certain kind of provincialism that yeah. sometimes pervades uh, certain politics. So how do we do this and think about home in a global planetary way? And, and what do we what do we do uh, next? Yeah, I mean, I think this gets us to some of the discussion we were talking about before about not not here, but prior to our being on camera. Uh, consciousness, you know, and you, you're coming at from um, the, the angle of black surrealists. I'm coming at from Zen Buddhism. Um, and both really are, are anti-colonial, decolonial um, um, beliefs that try to make visible other possibilities, right? That, for example, um, it may not be the best example in the world, but part of my, I teach a class on abolition and climate change. I'm I, The first thing that we did in the course is, uh, what's a system? What's a system? How does it work? How does it how does it exist? And we had students come up with art projects. It was very cool. And um, I showed them a photograph of a sewer line. I live in a condominium complex, and there's a very clear demarcation between what sewer part of the sewer line I'm responsible for and what the community is responsible for. And counterposed to that, I had pictures of how tree roots grow into the sewer lines. So I'm thinking, this is a good way to teach people, hey, we don't think about sewage. You know, we, we, you know, that's part of, it just gets whisked away someplace. We don't think about the relationship between our waste and nutrients for, for trees. And we don't think about responsibility. So one way is to look at the world with new eyes, to imagine connections that we've been taught don't matter. I mean, that's so important, right? I tell my students, of course, we're bombarded with data. You, you all have more data than I could ever imagine. And so you trust the algorithm, you trust the pundit, blah, 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 to sift all this through you, for you. And when you do that, you're impoverishing yourself. It's not that you have to pay attention to everything, but you have you have to give it the option of being meaningful to you. And you have to take responsibility for um, what's what you consider to be meaningful to get back to the beginning of our conversation, for a good life. What's your version of a good life? And if your version of a good life, and it gets back to provincialism, is I'm okay. <laughs> you know, my immediate family is okay, my my block is okay. Then you're 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 really um, relegating yourself to a very poor notion of life. And again, getting back to the notion of incarceration, what's happening in the third world or the second world, the the, the south, is going to happen here. It, it, there's no way that we can avoid uh, the devastation of climate change. Um, so all we're doing in keeping up the barriers in our minds and in our our imaginations is we're just buying time and it's and it's it's the most um pernicious 
self-incapacitation, I can imagine. Exactly. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're buying time also um, in ways that we don't always, living in the global north, you know, uh, especially of a particular class, don't always recognize how wow. our consumer society, uh, you know, which we, which is like the ether, it's like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the water we have access to, other people don't have access to, right, mm-hmm. um, is there. And, and so one of the questions that came up in, in the chat was, you know, what's the trade-off? And so is what quality of life or, or whose deaths will the global north polarize consumer society? Except that's to say the sort of white liberal bourgeois um, consumer society. Um, how do you get past that? Um, you know, I have a million stories of just disconnect, you know, of seeing things. But how do you get past um, the global north comforts that we take for granted in the fight, mm. the, the fight even in uh, in the region that we're in, even the fight for water in Detroit, mm. example, mm-hmm. which in some ways could be seen as a global south issue, but in some ways it still is a global north issue. Given the conditions of the rest of the world, how do we get past that and find voice that could speak to that truth mm-hmm. rather than just the truth that we know in front of us? Well, I mean, we are aided, unfortunately, with the empirical world. Uh, Capitalism has proven itself to be absolutely unsustainable, right? And, and the, the, we talked about Biden and, and you know, his anim- reanimation of FDR. Well, you know, the, the common sense notion of the, the New Deal was that it saved capitalism from itself. You know, it was just patching things together. And we're seeing before our eyes um, the slow but steady extraction of everything. And when the the, the CEO of Nestle says water is not a human right and that corporations are better better suited to preserve water for everybody because they have the profit motive. It's people are refusing to buy that anymore. And I'm reminded of what happened when uh, Trump attacked the postal attacked the postal service. There are certain things in life that just seem right and we count on as part of our normal life and um, having water at your disposal. And there was one, I I know some folks that work uh, in Detroit, and there was a city council meeting, and a city council member actually said, water is free. All you have to do is take a bucket and go down to the river. (laughs) And, you know, that's not buying more. We're stretched to the limits. I cannot imagine things being more stretched, um, that we are now um, in a different, a completely different climate, weather cycles, we're, and everybody's buying air conditioning. It's, it's become so clear that we're just putting band-aids on things. So I think that the key to this is to make ourselves humble, that we are not exceptional. We are not any better than anybody else. We're just luckier, and our luck is running out. Uh, the, the, the odds are against us. If you're a gambling person, the odds are tremendously against us, and we better recognize that. Right. And, right. and I would I would add to that, which is what you do, that is make ourselves connect ourselves to movements and struggles in other parts of the world um, in a real direct um, and dedicated way. You know, I was thinking, too, and this actually came up in the chat as well, question um, about 
a rights-based framework because it sounds like you're very critical of it, sort of, or if critical of a rights-based framework while also trying to um, salvage what could be useful in thinking about rights. Right. I want to ask this question because um, it's a combination of my question and the question in the chat. Uh, you know, I think about the way the discourse is shifting, not entirely, but there's shifts away from rights and more towards issues of accountability, mm. obligation. In other words, the things mm. that force a connection uh, and a, a kind of mutual sense of obligation to one another, um, whereas rights come out of a, a kind of tradition of of individualism. And, and you push back against that. I mean, you, you push back against the idea of the individual right, and you're thinking really hard about that. So, and especially given the fact that you work on Palestine consistently, um, and I want to ask this question, so what, what, what are the limits of a rights framework, especially given, like in the case of Palestine, for example, it was kind of a dead end for the Palestinian liberation movement. Uh -huh. um, is is, uh, is is a rights framework still salvageable, or are we talking about something different than rights? Maybe a different mm -hmm. kind of vision that you're presenting in terms of what, what speaking out place is about. Right. I mean, well, as you know, you know, BDS uses human rights as a kind of tactic. It's not the end all, but it's a way of of intersecting with a global discussion on this. But I return to Hannah Arendt when she says she's her criticism of human rights is this. She said they became failures when the, the state turned into the nation. In other words, instead of a state where you have the equal distribution of rights and privileges and responsibilities, you have the ethno-nation. You have the emergence of a, um, a, a, a ethnically or racially identified nation that then rules some people of less value than others. And once you have that in place in the nation state, and the nation state is the guarantor of rights, you're screwed. I mean, this this is exactly the reinforcement of segmentation. Uh, and so she says, the only thing, the only way that human rights can ever exist internationally is for the international community to work together for it. So she takes it out of the political and very much into um, civil society. And I think that's what we begin to see the the signs of. I mean, you've been working on Palestine longer than I have, and you will agree, I think. I've never seen so much activity, so many people coming forward, and it's been a slow hearted progress, but we've broken the taboo. Um, so I think if you use that as one example, we can see that using rights as a tactic or a tool rather than the endpoint facilitates some uh, some kinds of discussions that we couldn't have imagined happening before that precisely bind people from different spaces together in a common cause. Um, that's great. That's fantastic. Before I get to the couple more questions in the chat, I had to ask you this. Um, you have this great line where you're calling on on all of us you know, to rethink political activism and you, you're right to make every public space an anti-fascist, anti-racist, uh, pro-democratic one. So what does that mean? Well, how do we do that? And what does it look like to you? Um, 
That's a great question because it can be, you, you imagine if you, if you stretch it abstractly, you can think just simply with your, as again with the bogs, is notion of tr- self-transformation. You make it different just by being there, right? And so every interaction you have Right, whether it be over buying a hot dog or whatever, you're you're carrying with you a sense that you're not alone. You're everything is interdependent. And it also means that when you see violations of those principles, especially violent ones, you step up. You, uh, whether it's physically or you you point out what's going on. I think that that's so much that takes you know, it, it's not just the classroom is everywhere, but maybe it is, right? We all, we have an obligation to share knowledge. We don't have to have people agree with us, but we have to be able to trust ourselves to engage in, uh, with others in ways they're not used to. So everything from the scale of the individual to small groups, to large or uh, formal organizations, but so much of it has to do with symbolically taking that space too, to declaring it different and see how long you can sustain that. Well, you said it. You said it when you talked about small groups and organizations, because it's a lot easier with a crew. <laughs> Always. You know, yeah. you roll with your crew, and, you know, which which brings me to one of the questions in the chat. Um, someone asked if you could talk, if you could talk about how we can develop the competence to speak in places where we feel and are made to feel out of place. Mm. And that is, that's a really wide question because it includes, you know, the bodies we occupy, mm. the space, the, the, the class positions we hold, our relationship to institutions of power. So what is your, what is your um, yeah. suggestion on that? Well, you know, I, I'm going to lean on Adrienne Marie Brown, which says start small. And start having the conversations that only people present at that small space can have and be, and develop that trust. So it's not like I'm imagining people could just go out to wherever and be perfectly comfortable and confident. You develop confident by knowing that you're not alone. That's that's the most important thing is exactly follows up on what you just said. Right. If you have a crew, if you're with small group of people. And then you, it grows that way, and it's a process, and you develop a kind of fluency and confidence through that. So, um, yeah, that would be my response to that question. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm so old, I'm so old school. I think about like sometimes I get a little bit romantic about the days of the party where you know we were in parties. That's not the case nowadays. They're bloggers, but there are parties still. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But parties also have a certain kind of cost. Um, so I'm not going to get into that. So <laughs> let me go to some more questions in the chat. So before we run out of time. Um, so this is a really great question. What, what guidance do you have for your young students who are facing a world that's collapsing? What do you learn from your students? Mm. Well, what I learned from my students is resilience. Um, and um, the fact that they show up. I mean, that to me is just showing up. And what I learned, too, is that it's important to calibrate what I try to do in the classroom to what's available in life. And it really actually, in a weird way, it helps me distill down what's the main point of this course. And if we can all sort of focus on that, then even with depleted energy, uh, we'll be okay. 
The other thing that I take hope in in terms of my students is their how they're they're both working with fear and hope at the same time, and they're not not lapsing too much on either side, but they're working this out. And so it gets back to things that Rob and I were talking about before. You learn through people's struggles. And when you mentioned parties, and yeah, you can even learn from the collapse of parties. I mean, you know, we know, okay, that, and it's usually, and Robin will agree, it's when somebody's ego gets too big. <laughs> you know, it's precisely when they think they ha- they've seen the truth and you all have to follow along. And that's so. The, and this goes back to the question: what I have faith in, and and why I do this. It's got to be collaborative. I'm learning so much in the classroom. Uh, and the other thing about struggle, uh, when when my students are especially pessimistic, and ask, "How do I do this? How do we do this?" What other choice do we have? I mean, we have a moral imperative to live our lives in the best possible way. And to calibrate in terms of likelihood of success, I'm not there. I'm not, I, I sort of was there for a while, but I think now we just have to go for it. We really do. We have to go for it. There's another side to, um, to the arguments you're making uh, that I think we have to pay attention to. Um, and that has to do with not just what we know and how we challenge expertise, but how we learn. Mm. Um, how do we, and this, this is tied to a question in the chat where someone was asking about, basically, how do you transform education? You know, in other words, um, at, at every level, uh, since it's, it's within institutions of learning from primary to higher learning that we are often first introduced <clears throat> to pro-capitalists, you know, pro-electoral ideas, ideas that are just sort of common sense. And just a little little um, uh, anecdote. You know, I taught at Stanford one uh, one sem- one quarter, this one quarter semester, and I had a great. I had wonderful students. Of course, on neoliberalism, <laughs> but then the, the students were great, mostly black and brown students and Asian students. And then I went to some dinner with a bunch of other students, and everyone introduced themselves. And in the introduction, every single student around the table was starting a start, startup company. Like they all had companies, but not companies like, you know, we're going to build revolutionary, you know, capacity. No, they were like, we're going to, I'm going to make as much money as possible. So I'm wondering how, and I'm, it's not about Stanford, just about generally, how do we roll that back? What do we, what does it require for us to think about the next world, mm. which hopefully mm. the next world won't be the world that we're in, but radically different. How do you do that in, in terms of transforming education? Well, again, we have to think about learning capaciously. And I don't want to sound flippant, but when I see people like that, the first question that comes to my mind is, who raised these folks? <laughs> you know, in other words, it starts so early uh, when you have to have things and when you have to have this thing because the other person has that. Uh, but ultimately, um, it's, it's an act of persuasion that um, I think, again, we have a lot of empirical proof to, to back us up in this case. It's not fun to live that way. I mean, how can I, so speaking of which, I ran into, um, yeah, I think we have time. I was in the drugstore getting a prescription. This is many years ago. 
and this woman came up and she said, oh, I know you. I didn't know her, but she said, I know you because I know your son. He's such a nice kid. I said, yeah, he is. But yeah, what did he do this time? He said, I found going through my son's pocket, uh, this little note that your son wrote him. And it said, dear something, I hope your stomach feels better. And I said, oh, that's, that's really cool. And she said, yeah, because this kid grew up to be one of the first billionaires under 30. And he has perennial ulcers and he started getting ulcers as a kid he was playing the stock market when he so that cannot be fun you know um but that and that and i think it goes exactly back to the idea of being parochial and protected you think that if you have all these things you're immune and no you're not and the cost of your supposed immunity is your soul it's my mind and i think the same way when i think about Things like sexual violence. I mean, you know, campuses, especially the first year, I mean, this pre-COVID when people actually came, this idea of being, you know, being a man, you have to do, you have to adapt this mantle of brutality and callousness. And I said, that can't be fun keeping up that facade to sort of, you know, embracing brutality. So I think we have so much going for us if we can just get decolonize our minds and see that all these things are not frivolous ancillary luxuries they're the stuff of life and all this other stuff is what's killing us in my opinion so this is my this is going to be sort of the final big question um which is tied to what you just said about what it means to decolonize our life well i love the fact that in the final chapter and i'm just going my memory here you, you quote um nick estes the red nation um, as a kind of alternative to, to the Green New Deal, the Red Deal, and and really think hard about um, alternative ways of critiquing capitalism that's not necessarily the same old um, Marxism that we've inherited, but indigenous thought, for example. Mm-hmm. So I want, so now the final question really is about your new project, which grows out of this one, and that is, I guess you, you're doing a book dealing with kind of engaged Buddhism and, you know, again, this is, goes way beyond political education. It's like, how do we really think about how to live together and remake our values, remake our relationship to each other, to, to mistakes, uh, to um, catastrophe? You know, how do we actually understand it so that we can move in ways that are really truly emancipatory. So talk about your new project and what are the lessons that we can learn for the next world? Mm-hmm. That's why I want. What's the next world we're, we're building? Yeah, I think, I mean, and part of the next world is here, right? And it's possible again, and it gets back to when we were talking about pundits and individualism and all this, the, the basic Western values of freedom are always attached to an individual. And and, ha- and and freedom is being free of things, right? But what if you flip it and talk about obligations to others, not as others, but part of a common human family? So a lot of what I'm trying to get into now, and I'm just starting, I've been interested casually for a while, but this historical convergence has really pressed me to see how indigenous knowledge, Buddhism, and other forms just make so much more sense and you think about the green new deal it's capitalist it's just it's the same logic of just moving the ships on the you know, deck chairs on the, on the sinking ship 
it's not sustainable. It's the illusion of, of, of sustainability and betterment. And it's not better. It's just reshuffling things. So how do we get to indigenous knowledge? How do we get to the idea that we are in this together in an authentic way, not in a bullshit way, right? And it can only be through seeing the evidence before our very eyes. Nothing I have in this room or me exists independently. I had parents, believe it or not. You know, we all had we all were objects of care and it's our, we keep, we have to keep recycling that care. So I think this has everything to do with activism. It has to do with um, being non-doctrinaire. It has to do with being flexible and agile and identifying projects that everybody signs on to. And that's what, how we're going to sustain things. It's not by imagining a formal movement necessarily, or formal political party or anything like that. All those things compartmentalize in ways that instead of gain, you don't gain energy, you deplete it. That's a good point. So we, we only have an hour, right? Or do we have more time? Tell me, um, Amanda. <laughs> oh, have more time. Okay, good. I see. I, I wanted to make sure I, I got so many projects going. Well, good. So we do have more time. That's not my last question. So in that case, um, let's go back to uh, the other. So there was another question that had a, a more recent question, uh, which is, and I'll let you, I'll just read it as it is, mm-hmm. because, you know, it could be contentious. <laughs> so can we help people that don't want help but need it? If so, how? Mm-hmm. Is it? It's a very tricky question for reasons that should be obvious, but, you know. That is such a propitious question because I just screened that beautiful film, Beasts of the Southern Wild. Mm-hmm. Remember that film? When, um, for those of you who don't know, there's a group of, of, of basically very poor black and, and white folk living in the sort of swamp in Louisiana called the bathtub. And um, they decide to break the levee that separates them from the city. And one of the one of the inhabitants says, "Don't do that. Once you do that, we become you know, objects for them." And that's really ha- what happens. They break the levee, and all of a sudden, they are um, drawn into the hospitals. They're given blue gowns, and one of the characters says to the other, "You know, this isn't a hospital. This is a prison. You know, we've become rationalized. We've become healthy by." Um, by the mandate of the state. And I asked my students, well, is the hospital, is it a hospital or is it a prison? How do you read this? And I think the film does a very good job of making us teeter-totter on the, uh, in between. Because you could say, yes, it's saving their life, but what's the quality of their life going to be? You know, how are their lives going to be anywhere near what their value, commensurate with their values? And they end up leaving. Um, and facing whatever they're going to face, but facing it together with dignity. So I think the idea of saving people who don't want to be saved, um, it all depends on your idea of, of, of um, dignity. You know, are you going to grant them the dignity of knowing what's best for them? Now, this does get us into contentious areas, because then you think about people who um, are doing things that they think are the best for not only their group, but for everybody, right? That they are 
they're opening the doorways for everybody. Um, and that gets us into an interesting discussion. So I think that, th I mean, but that's basically the issue of the social contract, isn't it? How much do we give to get what we have? And is what we're getting anything that we want? So, you you know, whoever asked the question, great, great question. Uh, and it's a fundamental social question. I can't answer it in other words, but I can give you different possibilities. Exactly. Well, you know, part of what's embedded both in the question, but it's also very clear from your text is that, um, you know, we two things. One, we often depend on uh, not ourselves, but the state and other institutions uh, mm. that are now an automatic pilot in some ways mm. to, save, to save us. You know, and it goes back to what you said about the Green New Deal. Um, you know, the right legislation won't, won't save us. You mm -hmm. know, um, it, is, it is the best we can do under the circumstances in a representative democracy that doesn't allow for the kind of deliberative processes yeah. uh, and, and, and participatory processes that, that social movements have tried to practice, at least some have tried to practice for, for a long time. Um, so I guess having said that, you know, Clearly, everyone needs some help. Everyone needs, there's, there's got to be a rescue plan for the planet and for all kinds of people, especially those who are affected more directly in the line of fire. So if we can't, you know, if it's not about helping, um, what could be our role as anti-imperialists to stop the structures that make it different here in the global north fight those forces to make possible mm -hmm. autonomy, self-determination, capacity for others in the world without being saviors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one, a couple of terms that have been, you know, circulating a lot in our conversation is trans self-transformation and modesty, humility. Mm -hmm. And you have to think of what works for people, the people you're trying to help. And I immediately flashed on um, what uh, the colonizers did to Hawaii. Hawaii had a very vibrant um, ecology, human community, etc. And when United Fruit and its predecessors came in, they mapped it, they cut it, they segmented it into um, Western style maps. And instead of having an interdependent um, set of topoi uh, places, it became gridded to a production for the for the West, and it destroyed the ecology. Obviously, it, it 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 imposed an artificial and unsustainable map on top of it. And the human um, correlate is that they they insisted that all the natives wear clothes, mm -hmm. and this created so much disease you wouldn't imagine. Because those of you who know Hawaii knows that it rains all the time. It rains for an hour every day, and then it dries up. So if you're wearing clothes, that will make your skin clammy and trap the moisture, and it will stop that natural um, uh, aeration or whatever the word, evaporation. So one thing is see what works, what works mm -hmm. for the people there, and don't impose things upon it that you think will work. And that requires a lot of decolonization, because you go back to things like the World Bank. I mean, the assumptions of what a good loan is, what things are worth investing in, uh, is always top down. 
So that that would be my response to that. Look at look at what works authentically works and is sustainable, not which things that work only when you inject it with a little, you know, um, flow of cash and then pull out. That's, that's great. That's great. Um, there was a question. There was actually one thing I could do real quickly, and that is um, uh, there was a question in the chat. Where did you learn here about the the story about Baldwin at Harvard? And of course, Ann Bailey writes about it. In, in, she has a blog post about that story, which you cited in your book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's so the answer to that. I, I could put I could put it in the chat. Actually, um, mm-hmm. the question is whether or not they'll be able to see it. So that's in the chat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let me go to um, the other question, which is so much about our current political landscape seems permanently or completely unchangeable. Uh, where have you seen the seeds of transformation or any kind of of way out? And of course, you, your whole argument is that it's not completely unchangeable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so so what, what are the seeds? Um, or where have you seen the seeds of transformation or any kind of, of, of way out? I know that's in the book, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I'll let you rip on that. Yeah, I mean, so much of it depends, one, on duration, right? What what are your requirements for things? How long does that victory have to last? And then how receptive are you to think that even as things stop working or stop being a victory, so to speak, that they don't sort of like rhizomes go elsewhere and inspire something else. Um, but one thing, I mean, it goes back to Palestine, really. To me, it, it's been amazing. And, and so much of it has to do um, with young Jewish people. Not, uh, not turning against their elders, but questioning the worldview that could allow Palestine to be what it is now, right? And to see the the contradictions between being, as we all should, uh, horrified by, by the Holocaust and yet uh, supporting a state that's perpetrating something that's that's quite similar in all sorts of ways. So we see change uh, that um, it's not just political. What I really admire about this is it's an emotional change. It's changing one's inner sense of the world and how the world can work. So I see there's, there's got to be possibilities, uh, but we also have to be attuned to the fact that it may not come in the packages that we're used to um, to seeing. And we've been taught to see. We can only see it when we have power, when we when we win the Senate. I mean, what good does winning the Senate do necessarily? It doesn't guarantee anything. No, that's true. I'm glad you brought up Palestine because um, it's the one area, as you know, from direct experience, uh, the the most volatile in terms of the consequences for speaking to power. And I think about um, just all the young Palestinian students and those who are in, J- in um, SJPs, uh, Students for Justice in Palestine, all over campuses who are being harassed and hounded and thrown out of school and um, dealing with really real serious repression. And so an organization um, I'm associated with, I think many of us are, um, uh, Palestine Legal, has taken up these cases. And there's so many of them. And yet they continue. They continue to have this kind of resilience. And 
Then we have the case of Bob Abdelhadi, who's spent most of her career being hounded in the University waging war on her. And it takes really a lot of us to stand up in, in, in solidarity with with uh, colleagues like Labab and in solidarity with those others. Um, do you see, I mean, on the one hand, I do feel your optimism because the fact that there have been some victories around the struggle in Palestine is something to be uh, amazed by. But at the same time, you know, it's amazing how um, it's the one so-called free speech issue that's never treated as a free speech issue. You know, it's, it's, it's the issue where it's so hard to speak that people mm. this day in, in 2022 yeah. are still hesitant. Um, how do you sustain the work you're doing? What do we, how mm. do we build solidarity and capacity so that, um, that Palestine can be free, you know? Yeah, no, it's... Um... I'm so glad you mentioned Palestine Legal. They are amazing. Uh, and you're, you're right. They just take on enormous numbers of cases. And they're, you know, 99.9% of them are frivolous lawsuits. Uh, I had the privilege of being at Rabab's last hearing. And the judge, when he threw out the case, said he was contemptuous of the people going after her. It was clearly, there was no basis in, in any law for that. Um, well, you know what's happening in Sydney with all these artists opting out. And as a matter of fact, USAC, we're trying to do uh, with John King um, something the equivalent of Don't Play Sun City. And it's really hard. We, for those who don't know, this was um, uh, a boycott of playing South Africa. And it's so much more difficult, as Robin said, when it comes to Palestine, because so the so much of one's professional existence can be threatened. But I think having people, I, I know, you know, I'm skeptical about celebrity activists as well, but there's something to it in the fact that it gives people protection, a certain amount of protection. Um, so I do feel that um, change is slow, but it's happening. And it's also just also by the work of time that, uh, my generation inherited Paul Newman uh, playing in that film Exodus, right? This huge <laughs> pro-Zionist. I think Salminia was playing an Arab, right? <laughs> he gets off pretty quickly. But in any case, um, and we grew up with this. Uh, the theme song to Exodus for Ronnie and Teicher was on, on, on the radio constantly, and there was no alternative. And Edward Said often said, when people say, are you telling me that the, 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 the Jewish narrative is, is no good? And he said, no, I'm saying that there's, only, there's not one narrative. There's not just one narrative. And so I am buoyed by the fact that people are, are seeing more and seeing different ways of putting images together that show and indict the, the, the Israeli state for what it's doing, which is to my mind, one of, if not the most violent um, acts of settler colonialism we can imagine. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, I'm wondering, you know, to turn back to the to North America, uh, a theme that runs throughout, especially the first part, actually throughout the book, uh, is you use the F word, 
you know, you you talk about fascism as something that oh, we need to be concerned about, that we need to fight all the time. What what is what is the um um what is the threat ahead of us? And we're 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 now a year out from the Capitol insurrection. We have continued fascist movements. I would argue that the the so-called attack on critical race theory is part of that fascism. Some say call it microfascism, macro, you know, whatever it is, it's fascism. Yeah. Um, how 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 do you assess the threat of fascism, and what you know, what specific things can you think we can do or must do to basically resist fascism, or is it just here as as a political um, tendency that we just have to resist constantly, or is there any way to crush it? Well, that's what was so, I mean, among other things, shocking and depressing about Trump's election, which was for a lot of Americans, things were getting better all the time. You know, we had our first black president, et cetera. So all the struggles and all the lessons of the 60s and 70s seemed to have taken taken root. There was that bump in the 1980s, but then we'll forget that. But no. That bump in the 80s is where we are now. I mean, this, the neoliberal consensus and the immense racism. I mean, I, I don't want to be reductive, but to me, it all comes down to race. It really does. The, the immense threat of people that look different than us, that have been demonized and dehumanized. This is coming back to haunt America. And that's that's what disturbs me the most. It's not a political tendency. It's an emotive, affective uh, resistance to embracing humanity. And it gets back to the boxes, our enlarged sense of humanity. This is a huge stumbling block because people think they're going to lose so much when we're trying, uh, on the other side of the thing, you're, you're or, you've already lost so much. You can only gain. Uh, and this is why it's so indicative that so much of what's driving this political turn is from, you know, the ex-Confederate states. I mean, it's, it's basically people uh, in areas that don't have much exposure to people that look or act different than they do, right? So they are the majority continually, and they impose that minority viewpoint on the rest of us. I mean, we all know the figures of the number of set of set who represent X number of people. And the Republicans represent a fraction of what Democrats do. And that's, that's the way that it worked out with the Electoral College and the bargain over racism that that, that um, was part of that. So I think racism is something that is obviously stoked by Republicans. That's what, that's their, that is their main theme, whether it's direct or indirect. How do we get away from it or how do we get past it? A, is not to quibble about whether it's fascism or not. Robin is exactly right. You know, in the academy, we have all sorts of, well, it's not classical fascism. Who really cares? You trace the effects, trace what it enables. And then, um, Protect each other. I think so much has to do with uh, not being um, segmented off. And but it is it frightens me. I mean, this is why we started the Campus Anti-Fascist Network was because we saw we, we were already sort of in formation before Charlottesville. But the attack on not just the academy, but on facts. I mean, this is what's really um, surreal in a way. 
right? The, the fact that facts don't matter, that, that you can produce an alternate reality and you can produce it because people see that it's to their interest to believe in the lie. Um, but yeah, this is the this is the nexus this that that frightens and puzzles me, and I think you know it comes down to just we all have to do the best that we can do with our best selves, and we should not feel ashamed by doing that. Right, that's no small accomplishment to discover your best self and support others. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I, I would I would um just add a couple of things that actually in thinking about the geography of racism and just thoughts I had about this, and I just want to get your reaction. Um, one has to do with, uh, with, cause you mentioned the ex Confederate States. I don't, I don't disagree, but then, you know, the, 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 the sort of epicenter of a lot of anti-Asian violence is New York city. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, in other words, it's everywhere. And then at the same time, one of the things that makes the ex-Confederate states so reactionary, to me at least, has less to do with the population and more to do with the state. In other words, that the suppression of the vote, this gets us back to what is, what is, what do we lose when we lose democracy? Um, whatever little representative democracy we have left. But you think about places like you know, Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama, where union movements uh, and other social justice movements are really robust and struggling and resisting, but they, they're, they're right-to-vote states. And why are they right-to-vote states? Through legal means. Mm-hmm. Uh, legal mm-hmm. means meaning that they disenfranchise large segments of the voters. The state legislature rams through legislation like this other southern state called Michigan. Oh, I'm sorry. Michigan's not Southern, <laughs> but Michigan's like one of the worst, you know, yeah. the, 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 the state that brought us the most vibrant labor struggles mm. in the 30s and 40s also produced this kind of right wing um, uh, fascist practice at the level of the, the, the legislature. Um, and they're all there. And so this brings us back to, again, your fundamental argument about the importance of kind of voice, of being able to speak truth to power, and of basically developing democratic praxis so that we can recognize that even something as important as a referendum or um, or law, that this is contested ground. And when mm. the states that, that are able to deny uh, the populace the right to have any voice at all, are the ones that run ramshot over working people, you know, mm. over people of color, um, over women, over gender nonconforming people. Those are the places. And mm. they're dangerous because of the power that the state has through the denial of voice, through the denial of vote, through the denial of political participation. So that's my, <laughs> I know it's, it's a, yeah. it's a it's a question, but it's not really a question. It's really a, com- a comment I want you to kind of respond to. So. Yeah, well, I, again, I'm not a historian, but I'm thinking about the Southern strategy, right? That the way in which that was, uh, perverse, but but that that partitioning goes back way back to to earlier times, but in modern times, it was that it was tapping into um, the interests that the, the, of racists that would put their racist interests in front of their economic well-being. 
right? That that was that to me is what we're what we're living through now. We're still living through the results of the the potency of that that bizarre notion that your material life is less important to you, and the well being of everybody around you is less important to you than uh, safeguarding your racial identity and what you think that brings with it. That's true. And there's a lot of work around that. A lot yeah. of work to be done. Um, so the question came up in the chat. Um, could you talk more about uh, how the campus anti-fascist network was created and, and the work that, that it's doing on, on Stanford's campus, I guess, and elsewhere? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, we have about, I think, 40 chapters now. It's been there was an immediate surge of interest after Charlottesville. But as I said, um, and you know, you know Bill Mullen very well, Robin. He and I, and a couple of other folks, started thinking about this um, as Trump was campaigning. It looked like he was ascending, and we got immediately hit by the Zionist press by saying, "Oh, this is just a stealth move by these anti-Zionists." And I, we, we wrote an article that said, you know, you can be anti-Zionist and anti-fascist at the same time. It's, it's, it's easy, actually. So uh, um, it was born of the same impetus of um, being anti-supremacist, anti-ethno-supremacist. And, of course, the problem with campuses is that we have this notion, I'm, I'm careful how I say it, but the right exploits academic freedom and freedom of speech on campuses to bring people like Milos into Berkeley, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they take, they prey on the notion of, you know, the campuses should be a space for free dialogue and all this in order to bring in people who have no interest in it whatsoever. And basically, and it gets back to Rabob's case, to cow administrators um, to not protect people, to, to say that, uh, yeah, they'll go ahead and violate Rabob's freedom of speech and academic freedom, uh, but no, nobody else's, right? So it creates a sense of being under attack and being afraid. And, you know, uh, I was on the committee, we were talking about doxing. I mean, people that might... Uh, People have heard of Emily Wilder's case. She was a student of mine. She was an SJP. And she was attacked by Senator Tom Cotton, fired from the AP. So Campus Anti-Fascist Network has two or three primary aims. One is information sharing, aggregating information about what the attacks look like and how to defend ourselves. Two is educating people about fascism in general. And three is to be proactive and um, and create campaigns that will um, anticipate um, fascist attacks. And fascism, again, as, as Robin said, with we, 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 the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, Turning Point USA, they come in all shapes and sizes, but they all share the same feature of being opportunistic, um, vicious, and... Um, aiming at education much like, I mean, the whole, the, the Turning Point USA had a conference in Iowa, um, I'm blanking on his name, the leader of Turning Point USA was asked a question, and it's on YouTube, it was frightening as hell. This young guy, this guy gets up and says, and you can see it on YouTube, um, 
when my question is when do we get to use the guns when do we get to start killing people and people start laughing sort of nervously and uh charlie kirk says i'm going to disavow it because um because you're playing into their hands so it was not a moral issue it was a tactical issue but the person called out what was interesting it was a critical race theory event but he talked about medical fascism right in other words actually uh any he dragged on the a whole uh inventory of things that critical race theory stands in in consonance with so that's the challenge that is the challenge <laughs> no it is terrifying and yet we saw uh, it's, uh, just a little snippet of what's possible uh in terms of the the capital insurrection you know and it just so happens that they didn't bring guns per se but they had other weapons mm -hmm. uh and we have to be cautious well i um I I really appreciate uh, the way that you've always, always connected um, theory and practice and always, you know, learn from and applied uh, knowledge to struggles. And you never, ever, ever, uh, you know, ran away from a struggle. You know, you're always there. Um, and I'm just so honored to have had this conversation with you and also just want to make sure people go out and get Speaking Out of Place. It's a very, very important book. It is a book. It is of all your books. It is the one that is the most that feels the most urgent. Like you, mm -hmm. have, to, you have to read it like today and, and act because it's, it's calling for action, you know, uh, which is not something that, you know, scholars are known for. <laughs> Well, I, um, I, I want to say very quickly, Robin, the honor is all mine. And folks should know that this is like Robin's ninth hour online doing <laughs> stuff. So I'm so beholden to you, Robin, for your engagement and your presence. Yes, thank you, David. And thank you, uh, Haymarket, um, for putting out all those books. One, one day, maybe I'll get a book out of Haymarket. Because <laughs> that's the place to be. So thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you, David. Take care. Thank okay. you. I'll see you.